0: This is Christopher Long, and you're listening to The Digital Dialogue, a podcast dedicated to cultivating the excellences of dialogue in a digital age. This is episode 72, and today I'm joined by William H. F. Altman. Normally, my introductions begin by listing the accomplishments of my guests, of which there are many in Will's case, uh, including five books, most recently uh, one on Nietzsche as the philosopher of the second Reich, and an edited volume on Cicero. But today, uh, I'd like to start briefly with the story about how Will and I uh, came to be here in this digital space of dialogue with me sitting in a room in the inn in the Presidio in San Francisco and him in uh, Florinopolis in Brazil. It's probably fair to say that we met each other in my book on Socratic uh, and Platonic political philosophy. Um, perhaps it's strange to think of a book as a place in which two people can meet one another, (laughs) but um, it was Will's reading of my book and his reaching out to me to share his very generous review of the book. And then his willingness to enter into dialogue with me in the digital space that the book opened and seeks to cultivate that, that uh, we came to know one another. Um, And uh, that brought us really to this uh, digital dialogue through, uh, the Wonders of Technology and Google Hangouts. So my uh, invitation um, to him to join me for an episode of the Digital Do- Dialogue was prompted by a comment he made about my reading of Callicles in the Gorgias, a point which, to which I hope we'll, we'll turn in the course of our conversation. here. What I didn't quite anticipate uh, was... Um, that when I asked him for something of his to read in preparation for the discussion, I would find myself pulled into the introduction of a book that resonated deeply with my own approach in uh, in Socratic and Platonic political uh, philosophy in, in, in that book. And Will shared with me the introduction to his own Plato as teacher, Crisis of the Republic. And as I read that introduction on the plane yesterday, I was struck by the extent to which our approach to Plato and to the practice of reading Plato are similar. It was as if I was reading the work of a kindred spirit from the start. And so it's my real pleasure, uh, Will, to welcome you to the Digital Dialogue. Oh, well, thank you so very much, Chris. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the the Plato uh, as teacher book and what you're trying to get at. I mean, one of the things that really resonated with me about it was your uh, attempt to articulate the reading order of the dialogue as opposed to the chronological order of the dialogue or the dramatica order of the dialogue both of which have been advocated for by different you know parties of the of the of platonic scholars so maybe you could talk a little bit about that
1: well that's the that's the long and short the heart of the project uh, chris it's uh Pla- plato the teacher the Christ. i i envision that as volume one of a three-volume study of the reading order of Plato's Dialogues. Um, And uh, going along with that nice passage at the beginning of De Decailo, of Aristotle, uh, three seems to be a good number. Plato uses it all the time. And uh, the the idea is that the, the reason three is such a perfect number is that it's got a middle, and uh, I locate Plato's Republic dead in the middle of the reading order of Plato's dialogues. And by dead in the middle, I mean that literally. I, 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 I'm studying all 35 dialogues uh, preserved as authentic by Thrasylus. I'm justifying the authenticity of a dialogue like the Clitophon on the grounds that it directly precedes the Republic in the reading order of Plato's dialogues. So kind of mounting an ongoing uh, defense of the dubia on the basis of the reading order. But the three volumes then I started with the middle with the Republic saying that this is the core of what Plato's Plato, the teacher is trying to teach us. And right now I'm finishing the monstrous difficult one, which is volume volume two deals with the post Republic dialogues. Uh, And um, that's going to, if, if Lexington, is going to stay. I I think they're going to have to give me two volumes because I think we're going to go over the 650 page limit that they've got for an individual volume. And then I'm saving the fun ones for last, which is what I guess we'll be discussing today, which is the ones that lead up to the Republic, including the Gorgias. And and, I mean, there's a great deal of overlap with the traditional view. All of the dialogues that are generally regarded as late by the chronological perspective I put at post-Republic. But I also put the first tetralogy of Thrasyllus, because anybody that's going to take reading order seriously has got to uh, interpolate sophist and statesman between euthyphro and apology. Mm-hmm. And indeed, one of the coolest ideas in that, the volume I'm writing right now is that the philosopher is not missing. The philosopher is the apology of Socrates, which directly follows the sophist and the statesman, and that you're designed to realize that the *Eliatic stranger much like the Athenian stranger and Timaeus does not speak for Plato. And in fact, the whole idea of the post-Republic Dialogues is to, the title of the book is The Guardians in Action, uh-huh. Plato the Teacher and the Post-Republic Dialogues. And the and the idea is that Socrates wished to see the Guardians in action at the beginning of Timaeus comes true, when the reader actively becomes the combatant of the cosmological physicalized that we get in, you know, first in, in Timaeus and then elsewhere. So that's the volume I'm writing then, now. And then okay. the other one, so, so we're looking at all 35 dialogues of Plato. I declare myself an agnostic on the question of the order of composition. Um, and that I, but I, but I, I insist that I'm, I'm not creating simply a new paradigm. I'm, I'm reviving a very ancient one, because as we all know, thanks to, especially to Nick Denyer, who, uh, you know, kind of revived the Alcibiades, like you can't do reading order without the Alcibiades major being genuine, because the justification for that simple dialogue is it's the first dialogue that Plato wants you to read. It's uh-huh. childishly simple. So it's right at the very beginning of uh, the reading order in the third volume. So that, that's the basic idea.
0: So the the um, I mean the the approach really presumes that at the core of that the dialogues are really pedagogical at, at heart, right? That in fact right. uh, Plato has crafted them in, in in such a way as to uh, lead us as readers to uh, be take an active role in our own lives and and to become. Uh, to practice the politics of orienting ourselves toward the, toward the good. It, so, so what is the? So, the, since you're working on the second, the, the it's the second volume, but actually in the trilogy it's the third, right? So wow. let's <laughs> start with the middle. Stop! Because the first is the second, the second is the third. The Why not? we <laughs> We'll have to we'll have to look at the uh, the order of writing of your own text in <laughs> comparison. But I mean, you know, one of the things that I think is really important about that is the way that the the republic itself is crafted is in that um, cyclical uh, sense with the allegories as important um, uh, text that you point to at uh, at the center of it. So there is a good justification, I think, internal to the text of the republic to structure the wider reading of the dialogues in the way that you're suggesting. But so just give us a little quick layout of what, what comes after the Republic, because then we could go to the earlier ones and see what we should have read before the Republic. So in terms of the reading uh, order for you, the, the, the
1: the first step is natural. Uh, You go from the Republic to the Timaeus. And of course there's something missing. Um, And what's missing is the idea of the good. What's missing is the core of Platonism and justice. Um, And, uh, and uh, Critias, of course, follows the Timaeus. Uh, I regard the Critias as complete. Um, I think Plato was deeply influenced by Mr. Critias, but I think that he rejected him. And, of course, that relates directly to what we're going to be talking about if we get to the Gorgias, uh, because I locate the Gorgias directly after the Carmides, okay. uh, where, where Critias is given a chance to introduce himself. Um, and then the dialogue, the reading order of the dialogues falls off the end of the world, at the end of Critias. You've got this missing speech. Where do you go from there? Um, And that is the hardest part right (laughs) right there. Once you get to Theotetus, once you you recover your sea legs, Um, and uh, Sedley and others have showed well that Cratylus, leads into Theaetetus, especially when we abandon that silly... I- it's not a silly idea. I think Plato makes it conceivable that Cratylus directly uh, precedes... Uh, excuse me, that Euthyphro directly precedes Cratylus, but it can't uh, because of the word dawn. Um, at any rate, uh, that once you get to Cratylus Theotetus, you're okay. Cratylus Theotetus then 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 you get Euthyphro and then Sophist Statesman and then Apology... Uh, I have to do a little uh, a, a little song and dance when I interpret Hippar- interpolate Hipparchus and Minos in between uh, in between Republic and Crito, um, but since nobody thinks those dialogues are very important, that's not too crucial. And then you get the Crito, and then following Strauss, I take Strauss's idea that the Athenian Stranger is the escaping Socrates, uh, who doesn't follow uh, Socrates's own teaching in the Crito. Um, that 's why I call my Strauss book by by the way, the German Stranger, because I think Strauss the only difference between Strauss and I, he he likes the athenian stranger i don't I think he doesn 't want us to like the Athenian stranger because he wants us to stay in the jail cell and practice virtue to the end as in, in life as in death, as he says at the end of the Gorgias mm-hmm. and so i put uh, th- uh, uh put um laws and epinomis in between Crito um And so in other words, just like to just give you a tiny example that instead of thinking that Parmenides revises the ideas of Phaedo, I basically say that when in Phaedo, he talks about the idea of big, that he's already exploded the idea of bigness with a third man argument in the Parmenides. In other words, that's not what he means by an idea. Mm -hmm. What he means by an idea is the idea of the good and justice and beauty. And I'm not I'm not saying there any more and that the only participation he's interested in is you and I being just pursuing the beautiful. That one of the things I loved about your book was your hammering on what I called the Trinity. If I had a nickel for every time you talked about the good and the true and the beautiful, I'd be a wealthy man. And and that was music to my ears. I mean, that was music to my ears because those are the the big three. So anyway, I skipped over the hard part. What I do with the hard part is I say that the missing speech in the, uh, at the end of uh, Critias become, becomes the speech under the under the Himatian uh, of uh, Phaedrus in the Phaedrus, and that the Phaedrus marks a new beginning because it teaches you about the rhetoric of speeches of which you've just heard three from Timaeus and two from Critias, which you have to realize are false. And indeed, you have to realize that all of the speeches in the Phaedrus have their falseness to including the great speech uh, of Socrates, which everybody wants to have just simply be platonic. Right. Um, and then from there, I go to the Parmenides on the basis of the Antilogike Techne, which is described uh, in the second half of the Phaedrus, where he ref- directly alludes to Zeno as the Eleatic <laughs> Calamities. So the Parmenides is, the, is, is a training dialogue. I take it as a training dialogue, but specifically for the Philebus, right. which is the only dialogue where Socrates undermines the absolute distinction between Genesis and Ousia. Uh, And that that is the most difficult of the bassinistic dialogues because we have to we have to realize that our our pal Socrates loyalty to whom is going to be so crucial when we come to the to the to the laws and the statesman sophist is not sufficient. We have to judge by the truth and that, that 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 he doesn't make it impossible because all of the most important elements of Platonism, the absolute unity of the one, the idea of the good and the separation of being and becoming, all of them are undermined in the in the Philebus. So that is, pro- like, for me, that's the most controversial part of the book, and, and was a difficult one, uh, to write the chapter on on Philebus. Once yeah. we get to Philebus, I go directly from there to Cratylus, and that takes me into Theotetus, and I'm back on again. So that, that's, that, that was where I had to work for many, many... I don't know years, but certainly for many months to really decide how to arrange Phaedrus, Parmenides, Philebus, Cratylus, Theatetus. Right, but uh, that—that's the order of the, of the in the in the, in the book.
0: What an enormous! What an enormous project that is. What about the? So, I mean, in the introduction to the Plato as Teacher book, you you push hard on the idea of Plato as a Platonist. And I've always, um you know, resisted this, um, idea of, of, of Plato as a Platonist because I've been in a kind of polemical, you know, stance with regard to a certain kind of Platonism, a Platonism that, you know, that, that sort of uncritically reads, uh, reads out of the dialogues, a, a, a system of, of idealism and that that's unworldly, um. But you're, you're actually, you know, your approach is, I think, similar to mine in the sense of the three, uh, what I call ideals in the book of the, the beautiful, the just, and the good. And that, by the way, those three um, came uh, more strongly out because of a digital dialogue I had with Catherine Zucker about, you know, uh, the manner in which those three play different roles in uh, pedagogically in Plato's own sort of uh, – attempt to get us to think about different elements of our own ways of being in the world. But, um, but in any case, the, 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 the issue I wanted to ask you more about uh, to talk more about was, was what you mean by Platonism, because, um, at one point in the introduction you say, you know, at the, at the minimum it is sort of the unquestionable existence of eternal being. And, um, and you compare it to Kant's Ding on Sick, and 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 I thought it was a very you know uh, important sort of moment in the introduction to the to the book there. Um, and but my question really has to do a little bit with how how necessary is it to read the 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 existence of eternal being as unquestionable? So my I mean this goes to this idea sort of between. Or maybe your critique of a certain Straussian approach, which sees that as all sort of, you know, naive, naive thinking. Right. So um, maybe you could talk about a little bit about Plato as Platonist in your view.
1: OK, well, I mean, I guess that 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 since. You mentioned Kant and um, <laughs> you mentioned it. <laughs> I mean, you—you I mean, you mentioned my mentioning it. <laughs> exactly. The nice thing about the trinity of those ideas is that they're not over-determined. Uh, they leave plenty of room for dialogue between you and I as to exactly what those things are and what exactly. it exactly means to say that they're eternal and changeless and permanent objects of the philosopher's eros, um, that that and and the way he lives his life or she. Um, so. I don't think, I, I don't regard it as overly constricting to say that there exists a, a, a distinctly other realm, uh, which is the realm of, of truth, uh, that is outside of this cave of ours in which we are participating now, looking at these shadows in our computer screens,
0: <laughs> right. um,
1: whereas the real dialogue with Plato and Platonism is going to go on for a long time. Yeah. Um like part of it is, of course for me are. is polemical. Pla- Platonism has been under attack especially coming out of Germany uh for a long long time and uh, I'm resisting that. But I'm also resisting as you would say the the attempts in Anglophonia to uh to to defend the theory of ideas especially in the form of somebody like Churnus. I think what I'll say at the risk of being overly complicated is that 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 one of the villains of my piece uh, of my project is a man by the name of John Cook Wilson, uh, who in 1904 wrote a book uh, wrote an article about the uh, what it, the, the, the the passage in Aristotle where he refers to the inassociable or asumbletoi arithmoi, and uh, and he argued that that. That the idea, that the numbers are ideas, which of course is very important to Tübingen and, and the and the kind of view of the late thing, late late dialogues, which is that the num that, that the ideas become numbers. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess what I would say about Platonism uh, for me is that the divided line is a pretty important place to begin, and that like Kant, Plato did not think that arithmetic and geometry or any of the dianoetic uh, di- dianoetic unities were ideas. Yeah. That, that an idea is not a one out of many. That the one is the one, and the many are the many, and the and the monadic one, uh, not to be confused with the R.K. of Tübingen, but simply yeah. the R.K. of arithmetic described in painstaking detail in Book 7 of Plato's Republic as the essence of arithmetic – that experts of the subject won't allow you to divide because when you divide, they multiply. That one, that one becomes the key for me to Platonism in the sense that the one is not an idea and apple is not an idea and the cline is not an idea. And the carcass of, these are hypotheses. They are images. They are intelligible images of physical things, exactly as are described in the second part of the divided line. And the core of my interpretation of the Republic, and I think of Platonism, is to realize that the second half of the divided line, the dianoetic section that has to use hypotheses and images, is the shorter way. That's the big breakthrough in my reading of Plato's Republic, Mm -hmm. that the shorter way is exactly identical to the second part of the divided line, and that it's through dialectic and the higher part of the dialectic uh, of the divided line that we ascend to this idea of the good, whatever that may be. What we can be sure about it is that it's not a dianoetic unity, a one out of many as per the past. One of the great passages in Plato is where he anticipates it's Kant. I, it, Kant is a Platonist as far as I'm concerned, or Plato is a Kantian. I don't care. I mean, it do is.
0: you worry that, do you worry that, um, I mean, I think you, I think we're actually very similar on, on this point. I mean, my, my, my issue is that every time I feel myself being pulled to this idea of, you know, the eternal, uh, and, you know, and looking at, uh, the good, the beautiful and the just as, um, uh, metaphysically eternal um, ideas, <clears throat> I worry that um, that it, that's going to have a, a negative impact on our uh, on this world and our time in in the cave and our time you know, and so the diminishing of the importance of our time here is something I always worry about, which is why I emphasize the notion of ideals rather than okay. ideas and the erotic nature. Of no, no I saw that you were deeply influenced by I think
1: what's the best part of Zuckert's book, which is I mean, uh, other than that, the, 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 the trailblazing willingness to look at all the dialogues, which of course was so it was music to my ears. It was like I don't think I could get published without Catherine Zuckert uh, having yeah. that kind of blaze trail.
0: That
1: um, but but anyway, you, you, no, you're you're hitting the nail right on the head. That that the, the thing to realize is that 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 we can. We can put the, Id- the the way I look at it kind of is like this, Chris is that within that trinity of ideas that the first one he teaches you in the symposium, which is in the first volume, you fall in love with beauty because it 's the most accessible, and in fact he says that later in the Phaedrus it's the one that's it, it brings us up, we soar through eros too and and he's going to preserve the idea of the good as absolutely transcendent, no question about it, so, right. so the discomfort is justified in the sense that but Unlike a Neoplatonist, he is not going to call us to be moths drawn to the light of the good and a self-immolation, self-transcendence that is going to reduce this world to nothing. Plato is vitally interested in what we do in this world, and that's what justice is. Justice means to go back down into the cave. It's not about the creating a fraudulent unity of the three imaginary parts of your soul based on the hypothesis of the law of non-contradiction. All of that is on the shorter way. That justice compels us to go back down, so my Plato is eminently political, eminently worldly, but it's worldly action in the light of the good. it right. is predicated it's I lived for many years in in, uh, in in Lynchburg, Virginia, where Jerry Falwell kind of created yeah. this monstrosity one of the things I always wanted to say in Lynchburg. And uh, never got to say on the mountain is that Jerry always used to fulminate against secular humanism. And what I wanted to point out to Jerry Falwell with respect to secular humanism is that secular humanism is a completely God oriented idea. You can't even have secular without the eternal and right. you can't have humanism without situating us between gods and and, and 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 animals. The whole idea of humanism is predicated on the existence of something high or something lower. And this is exactly the way I feel about Platonism. That I'm not a Neo-Platonist. I'm a Platonist. Right. And by that I mean that yes, there is a two there are two worlds, but our activity is here. And our participation in the idea of justice is here. And our worldly action whether that involves being a public school teacher like me or a, a, a dean like yourself yeah. it involves committed political action in defense of the proposition that there are eternal truths that you and I and everybody else in digital land should should share in a dialogue in pursuit thereof.
0: Right. Well, so and
1: guide our life accordingly.
0: Yes, exactly. And I and I do appreciate um, your your. Uh, the, I mean, both of us are committed to public education in in a robust sense. And I think that is, I think we both agree that that is also a political activity, not in the overt sense of an ideological political activity, but in the sense of exactly what I think we both mean by platonic politics, turning souls toward uh, orienting their lives to the questions of the good, the beautiful and the just. So that's why he created that the academy. Line. That's
1: Plato, the it, teacher. It, that it, it is Platonic, and that's a beautiful thing in your book. That's what Platonic politics is with everybody that you might meet, under the presumption that our souls are equally capac c- 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 have the equal capacity of properly turned towards it. And I proved that with you know rural kids from Vermont and kids from Lynchburg, Virginia, and kids from San Francisco, where you are now, or actually from Oakland. Yeah. Uh, it, it, these are ideas that anybody can get, anybody that can speak the English language, and anybody that can speak Greek.
0: Or, any, <laughs> okay. yeah, or any, anything into which Greek can be translated. That's that's right. And um, so, so, but, yeah. okay, at the risk of moving us into a, a minutiae here uh, with regard to this particular point, and then we can move on, um, what would you say to the issue of, I mean, how important is it to you to insist upon... The, the existence of that other realm rather than uh, what I take to be the kind of Socratic uh, thought that it's, it's just better if we live as if it existed, that really cool. it's just that all we need is the hypothesis and to live according to as if it existed. And we can leave the whole sort of larger metaphysical question, which is really basically we can't determine because of our own finitude, whether that, you know, we would never be really in a position to be able to, to, to make that, You
1: know, make that case. Would you be open to that? No, but let me. I I mean, in in a word, Chris, but let me take some of the other words you used. Let's take finitude, take it back through Highland and take it back to Heidegger. Okay. Uh, And let's take your word as if let's take it back to Weihanger and take it back to Neo-Kantianism.
0: Okay.
1: Um, I don't like not, there's a scene that I like in uh, one of the Indiana Jones movies where he's in a castle and he, he peeks around and looks in a room and just sees a sea of, 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 of swastika armbands on, on, the, uh, on, the, on these people there. And in a very 19, almost a silent movie take, he pulls back as if in horror and turns to the woman next to him and says, Nazis, I hate these guys. This is how I feel.
0: Uh-huh. If it hadn't
1: been for Auschwitz and Theresienstadt, if it hadn't been for a systematic effort to purge the transcendent, to purge the absolute, which I take, which I take it that no people have done more to promulgate than the Jews uh, in the sense that God alone is what he is, the true Parmenidean being. I think maybe I would feel a little differently, but I see myself born in 1955 as a product of the First and Second World Wars. And I'm not going to give any comfort to Platonism's enemies. I think it's very important that Platonism maintain the, act, the actual existence, um, not epicena tes in the sense that it's somehow less than usia, but that it's <laughs> that it, that it's that it's even higher than that and the, and that 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 in the awe of that in the awe of that superhuman fully transcendent unchanging being this is how we come to recognize ourselves as 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 those that have an obligation to go back down into the cave that the absolute majesty of the good is its own fundamental compulsion so the We've had an experiment where, you know, Heidegger beat Ernst Cassirer at Davos. Uh, the Neo-Kantians, uh, Natorp was dead. Heidegger got his job. That that Neo-Kantianism and the Platonism of Natorp, which is all about—I mean, it's in a more science. What you're talking about, but it's very much Alzob. It's like a scientific hypothesis. My my own feeling is that Platonism is a great and powerful thing that you can measure an age's greatness by its commitment to Platonism, and that, quite frankly, even the good guys in Germany in the 1920s weren't platonic enough, and that that was why the Nazis, Heidegger, etc., were capable of winning, because you have to have a robust commitment to the absolute majesty and autonomy of Ussia, and that I take it that that is what Plato, more than any other philosopher, uh, taught. But I don't see it, the only olive branch I can offer you then is that, that I don't see it as justifying escapism, cosmological mysticism, and a variety of other. I think that Plato fully anticipates exactly the horrors of the 20th century especially in the laws, which I take to be a police state, funded by a kind of theological, political, quasi-cosmological. Quite simply, if God is going to be the structured order of, of the cosmos, and if the theos on the divine man, is going to be he who can lead, you know, Clinius and Megillus to create a nocturnal council to create this police state, I think it's really important to have a robust theory of ideas to say that that is not Platonism, my friend, that we're not going to let Critias put a speech in the mouth of Zeus at the end of Critias. We're not going to allow the Athenian stranger to create uh, Magnesia. We're not going to be fooled by Deiris and the various remarks in the, in the Eliadic dyad to allow the politicos to kill, to banish to confiscate, as long as he does it with science, that we are going to resist that. And that the only way to resist it is to have a very plain, plain commitment to the idea that nothing in the world
0: truly is. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I, I can see... Um I can see that that strong, and I can and I can see it. I mean, I actually, see it on your face. That strong commitment, and I and I I think there's something really important about that. I, the thing I worry about with regard to that is where where do the, you know, there another reading of what happened in uh, Nazi Germany and what happens all over. I mean, not well. What happened in Nazi Germany? Let's just stick with that, which is that. The, a certain kind of ideological viewpoint that was certain about its own certainty, um, mm-hmm. you know, was uh, was permitted to uh, take control of, you know, a certain population of people. So there. Yeah, there OK, a kind of, I get that. But but OK, we we, we we've we that uh, that that that. I,
1: I guess the way I would put it is you've got to be certain that the Nazis were wrong. Like, that's it. Yeah. Like, that's the, that's no, the no, great. No, lesson no. That. Right.
0: Right. And, and, and where do you get the toehold for that? I mean, that's the question. Where do you get the toehold for for that? I mean, for, uh, let's say, even something like a Martin Luther King Jr. Where does he get his ability to pull out of, you know, to, to, to appeal to something higher than the concrete, you know, system of racism that's 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 operating, let's say, in the United States? I've been
1: been to the mountaintop, right? You know, I've been to the mountaintop, but now I'm coming back down into the cave. And if they shoot me down on the, on the balcony of Memphis, I will still have seen the equality of all souls uh, under God and that nothing is going to change that for me.
0: Right. But how do you, how do you resist? I mean, in that robust Platonism, how do you resist the dogmatism that sometimes can take root and that can cut off the kind of erotic relationship to those ideals that I think have to animate our relationships with one another. That's the thing that I, that's what I worry about. ultimately.
1: Well, I think that that's an adequate worry. And I, and I, and, you know, whether we're talking about the new dog, the new Aristotelian dogmatism of uh, post-war German Tübingen, or whether we're talking about the Straussian, you know, rehabilitation of the, political philosophy, which is going to justify Callicles as the real Plato, right. or whether we're talking about the Chernyshori, uh, you know, old uh, kind of dogmatic uh, theory of ideas, uh, um, negation of the dialogic form, that those are all dangers, that I have to combat all of those in my book and try to show that there's middle path. Uh, gestured at by many people, Gonzales, many other people are gesturing towards some other way that gives absolute due regard to the reality of Plato as a, to dialogue as the pursuit of the good, but that also has a clear sense that you've got an obligation and that that obligation to me, I crystallize it into the one word at uh, at 520 C1, katabatheon. It's necessary for you to go back down and you can't go back down unless there's dualism. Mm -hmm. So to me, dualism prevents dogmatism about this world.
0: Yeah. And I think that. Yeah, I can see that. I think the, I mean, then we, I think we both agree that the, the question of the erotic and the, an hour as finite beings erotic relationship to those, that, that, that other world is critical. I mean, I think for, for me, that's what keeps it from being, becoming dogmatic. The presumption that we actually have grasped it, that we have control of it, that we could deploy it politically. That's, oh. that's, uh, and deploy that's it of politically you know? in, in a, in a um, you know, secure and dogmatic way, right?
1: And that's exactly what's going on in Timaeus. It, it, what stirs the Guardians to action is the deployment of something ideal-like, yeah. For the justification of a cosmological harmonious monism in the Timaeus, for literally political murder right. in and then for the creation of a police state in the laws. All of those involve the, 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 the apparent language of the ideas, but making them imminent. Yeah, in, in the physical right. world, which is exactly what he wants to prevent you from doing, precisely right. for the reason that you're saying, is that 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 a dogmatic uh, that, that 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 to be dogmatic about the existence of the ideas in the other world frees you up to be highly critical of everything going on here, whether right. it's the inequality of women or the existence of slavery or whatever it might be, and that and that he doesn't want to invest things of this world with the, uh, what would we call, with, the, with, the, with the, the numinous glow of the ideas, much to the contrary. That's exactly what stirs the guardians to action, what he tries to prevent. Right. To, to keep open the possibility of our awareness of our ignorance, mm-hmm. of our awareness of the radical finitude of our of our ability to think and our absolute ineradicable eros and certainty that there must somehow be something higher Uh and that this seeks to kindle and to, to build a life around. And I think has been has done so successfully in the dialogues when read as a whole,
0: right. Well, and also, and now this maybe can get us back to the uh, bassinistic uh, issue that, you're, that you raised in, in the, uh, that animates really a, a, a part of that uh, Plato as teacher book. Um, I mean, it is, uh, what's critical about the reading that you're offering of Plato and that I think I'm trying to uh, articulate as well is what it demands of us as readers. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about that with regard to that. And that might get us back to the Calicles question and, and, and what, you know, So sort of the conversation we're having on the blog as well.
1: What doesn't he demand of us as readers? Plato is the most demanding author that there is. Um, a brilliant, playful, but rigorous teacher who demands nothing except the most rigorous, painstaking capacity to read and, as, as you a great phrase, uh, the, the the politics of reading, yeah. and of course, by the way, another thing that you said earlier about how we're meeting in this place. You know, I think I think your words topographical and topological in the way you use them. I think they're going to stand. I think they're excellent words. As and I and frankly, the only thing I'm. The only thing I'm hoping will stand in my work is the simple word "basinistic," which goes to the heart of your question, yeah, coming directly out of the Gorgias, where Socrates, for the only time in the dialogues, turns to a particular character and says, oh, my God, if, if you agree with me, Callicles, you, I'm not talking to Gorgias or Polis here. If you, if you agree with me, I'll know that what I'm saying is true. Yeah. How how grateful do you think I would be to have a touchstone, a, a test, that would show me that my soul was really made of gold? Because in that, in you, I've found such a thing. The demands made on the reader from the very beginning, from, from Protagoras, which, by the way, I, I regard as directly before Alcibiades, because Alcibiades refers to an argument in the Protagoras, that that even if the first time we hear the Protagoras, we only have kind of a, an unsettled feeling about the way Socrates gets them to agree that the good and the pleasant are the same thing, is that from the very beginning, it, the, the, the latest thing I've, I've discussed, you know, that there's the old Socratic paradox that my friend Rosalind Weiss has written so much about, is that a good way to think about the Socratic paradox is to raise the following question. Would any one of the wise make a bad argument willingly, <laughs> and the answer is yes, because Plato does it all the time. Right, and he demands and tests his reader. He makes he, sometimes he embodies a bad argument in a person, like or, or or which doesn't mean to say there can't be a truth there even in the Athenian Stranger, although used for a fraudulent purpose. He demands perpetually that we scrutinize. It's often said that Plato is this otherworldly dude is like against uh, empiricism. As a teacher, Plato is a dead, dead certain empiricist.
0: Well, and I think that, that yeah, one of the issues there that I think is, is interesting that this is kind of that that that, that your comment on the blog has the first the very first one, by the way. So thank you. Thank you for, for doing it. Um, it focuses on Calicles is is really very, you know, the more you emphasize this point about a touchstone and the need for a real partner in dialogue that will, you know, uh, will be a kind of touchstone is, uh, I think really important. And I think, you know, um, uh, it's also been interesting to hear Marina McCoy's, uh, you know, response, uh, uh, to you in that. And, and I think, you know, obviously she's open to the idea that, um, that that Callicles is, is changed in a different way than 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 uh, than at least I originally kind of thought.
1: Um, do you want me to say something to that? Yeah. yeah. What, what what do you want me to say? I'm not quite. <laughs> sure. I, I,
0: <laughs> I don't. I just uh, I was I was going to push that that line uh, a a little bit. I mean, your point about Callicles with regard to uh, with regard so you I mean, your what what happened or your comment at least is is uh, rooted in the idea that I suggest that Callicles doesn't quite come as far as we might uh, as we might wish with regard to you know what he's learned and and you're suggesting i I don't do him enough justice with regard to actually looking at at how far he might have come
1: <laughs> well if, 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 if you I think you should realize that by criticizing by by, by criticizing Chris Long, for not admitting that Calicles could turn into Plato, that's, that's hardly a strong criticism since nobody ah, thinks.
0: No, oh, no I'm not taking it oh, as brain. a strong one, actually, I, I, as an opportunity for, I, I think that the, the best part about the comment is the, the, the idea that we have to think about what the figure of Calicles means for us, and we're, we need to have that conversation. Sure.
1: And, and I, I, I guess what I would say just to make sure that the name Cicero gets mentioned
0: yeah. is that, that, that
1: I think that in the dialogue with Marina, and I hope that uh, we can talk sometime too, Marina, because I really enjoyed your comment and and your work um, is that, uh, that one of the things that I've learned about Cicero is that well, C- Cicero begins his De orator with the claim that only a good man can be truly eloquent. Now well, he knew perfectly well that there were a, There were were many, many eloquent men that were wicked. And, of course, there's plenty of evidence that it's possible to be a truly, to to be an eloquent person and be bad. Hitler springs to mind. What I think that Cicero is driving at is that there are certain propositions that are so difficult to argue that if you can argue them, if you can put them across, you will ipso facto be eloquent. I think that Cicero said the smartest thing about the Gorgias that anybody has ever said which is in De Oratora, where one of his characters, Crassus, says, I've always found it amusing that that, that Plato was never more eloquent than when he was making a speech against rhetoric in the Gorgias. Uh, Because to me, that shows the playful element And to think that we can dispense with rhetoric, that, of course, was a nice thing in your book. To think that we can dispense with that, that we can dispense with being dean, that we can dispense with creating digital dialogue, that we can dispense with discussion. This is to truly miss the point in a radical way. Um, And, and of course, uh, Cicero is a guy that went back down into the cave. Learning rhetoric is part of going back down to the cave that's why justice and rhetoric are so intermingled in the gorgeous. you can't have one without the other if justice means going back down into the cave
0: right
1: uh because you have to do that you have to with everybody that you meet a point that you insisted on beautifully again and again with everybody that you might meet in the yeah. topo- and, and the topology of socrates at any rate i i i i i i I, I wanted to bring Cicero in, and now I've, I'm a little scared that I've lost the thread of what well, you were. I think
0: the, the the and maybe we could go to. You said you wanted to look also at the end of the Gorgias, the, some uh, passage with regard to the the whole oh. Calicles
1: Oh, good. Well, I will. But I just remembered yeah. the point coming back through Marina is that my claim is that if there were a, if that that if Plato the teacher has his students read the Gorgias, and that after they've read it, he simply says. What do you think Gorgias did next? Now, Plato knows what Gorgias did next. He turned into me, but they don't know that. (laughs) They don't know that. So my claim is that in the debate between Marina and let's, let's just make Marina and Will like stand-ins and ciphers for imaginary young academicians. What I'm claiming is the kid that plays Will's part that actually has to make the argument that Calicles turned into Plato because what Socrates is saying is true, true about the touchstone, true mm-hmm. about the message, that that person would automatically be eloquent because it would take more eloquence than I've got to put that point across. <laughs> it would require true eloquence to put across the point yeah. because, because not just because of Nietzsche and Dodds, but for many reasons, people can easily find old Callicles attractive. <laughs> In Sorry. fact... Thanks to Nietzsche, he's become extremely attractive, right. in fact. So, so and, and as I said in my original post, and I think it's true, is that that the people that most resist the idea that Callicles could have changed his mind are ipso facto those that are most sympathetic to Nietzsche. Yeah. And I take, I, I take Nietzsche to be the, – the, the, the difference between Nietzsche and Strauss, it seems to me, is that Nietzsche is still honest enough to hate Plato precisely, by the way, for that otherworldly reason that we're talking about, one of the reasons that I don't like where, you've told me why you're uncomfortable with where I'm going with the two world, the reason I'm uncomfortable with where you're going with the finitude collapse of the the other world is because of Leo Strauss. When we remake platonic political philosophy as a a radical repudiation of the ideas, I don't like where that goes either. I like it less than where you like where I'm going.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I mean, you know, I think that's why the, you know, the 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 accountability on both sides has to be held, just because it's too easy on the one side to fall into dogmatism, and then it's too easy to fall into a kind of nihilism on the other side.
1: There's a great passage in Gibbon where he talks about orthodoxy as like this ball that was allowed to, 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 to vibrate between two extremes. And this is, yeah. I think, what Plato did. He didn't yeah. make himself into the sage of Athens. He didn't say, as Nietzsche would say, I, Plato, am the truth. But he didn't, he wasn't a new academy skeptic either. He wasn't saying the truth is inaccessible and I know that there is no truth. He staged himself directly in the middle and kept philosophy alive as a result.
0: Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So
1: the passage I really wanted to look at, because the natural thing is that, so, I mean, just for, I guess, Anybody that would listen to this can read the comments. But so the, the 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 point that I made in the original post to you, Chris, and then that Marina got involved in, is the claim, the outrageous claim, that Callicles changes his mind after the Gorgias and that he becomes Plato. And so the natural question is, what is the textual evidence for that? And of course, there can't be any textual evidence for what happens after the dialogue but that there are certain things within the dialogue that point in that direction. And I wanted to share those with you uh, and especially at the very end of the dialogue. Yeah. Uh, So I just, I wanted to, I wanted to start at, um, at Mm 527 C where he talks about, he's made the point of course, that rhetoric is kolakea flattery, Mm -hmm. kaipasan kolakean, especially that kind of flattery about oneself. alus, uh, Let's get rid of that. Now that passage is a reprise of what I regard as a critical passage from my theory, uh, which is I won't look at it, but I'll give the Stephanus, which okay. is the 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 great long sentence between four eighty B seven and four eighty D six where Socrates first moots the idea that the true use of rhetoric is self-accusation, that you accuse yourself of your crimes, you bring your adikémata to light, and that if somebody were to use rhetoric to do that and to make oneself with teeth clenched and eyes shut undergo all manner of pain and undergo willingly the punishment that one's crimes deserve, that would be a good use of rhetoric. Mm -hmm. Well... That idea that rhetoric is not for the colleae aperihielcon, but is rather for self-accusation, to me, that's what my theory justifies. This in the form of the Gorgias,
0: and that's what the court Callicles is undergoing at the end, where he's just—he's just you let's know. Start
1: at the be- let's start at the beginning, Chris, where the very first thing that Callicles, this machismo man of might. Right where the first thing he says, the right way to end, the right way to arrive at a battle is too late. Right. That's the position of a coward. That's the position of a chicken hawk, of a right. Leo Strauss with appendicitis to avoid World War I, of a Martin Heidegger to avoid World War I, of a, of a Dick Cheney to avoid Vietnam. That, that, that opening line is a damning indictment of Calicles. Right that that is not the way you want to arrive at a battle. Socrates doesn't arrive at battles that way. He's the guy in the back of the rear guard at the retreat from Delium, protecting other ways, the other men, the way his student Xenophon will do on the march back from Kununza. He's the commander of the rear guard. Right. Yeah, right. So so, so th- th- my idea then is that in giving a portrait of Callicles, that it's, that it's an example of the right use of rhetoric, that the Gorgias itself, and this is why I brought this up, because it seems to me that my, my idea of Callicles as Plato creates exactly the moment of interface between what my friend Chris Long has called the topology of Socrates and the topography of Plato. It is the moment of identity of transition, transformation, and identity of those things, which is why I brought it up. And so you've got the, so right at the very end, he refers to that critical passage. And so to, 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 to my mind then, the, the words of Shakespeare in As You Like It come to mind, where Oliver says, when somebody asks, was it you that killed him? He says, t'was I, but tis not I. I do not shame to tell you, what I was, since my conversion so sweetly tastes being the thing I am. Mm. And I think that's what Plato was putting into practice in the Gorgias. He's giving you a portrait of his former as ass asholic ass, self, of this selfish, you know, Nietzschean dude. And mm-hmm. then he's saying, and, and by the way, just because I now feel good about it and can write this dialogue doesn't mean that I didn't experience shame in yeah. making that transition. I did. And I came face to face with my crimes and I purged myself of them, thanks to my friend Socrates. Yeah, yeah. So
0: and, and that these these dialogues that I've written are that you know, uh, well,
1: certainly this one, but yes, yeah.
0: but I mean, even on on your on, on your reading too, of the, the entire corpus is crafted to exactly. uh, to help other other readers come to that to that place too as, as close. As- and, and by the
1: way, one of the nice notes, if, if anybody's interested, I think it's, I think it's the core of Dodd's commentary. And I think Dodd's is a Nietzschean by the way, um, is that is on 267 where he, he makes a direct connection. He says the Callicles, he makes the claim that Calicles is Plato too, only in the exact opposite way that I do. In other words, that Plato remains Callicles in the sense that, and, and his evidence for that, is the Athenian stranger and the Eleatic stranger. It's a very, very interesting passage on page 267, which, and by the way, I think that because Plato had that in him, had been that, he knew what the dangers were, he knew what the attractions were, and so he was very capable of writing bassinistic dialogues that would lure you in the way he had been lured by Uncle Critias and his aristocratic Aristocles self to become Plato, which, by the way, I take Plato simply to be the plateau between being and becoming. Yeah, yeah. For what it's worth, anyway, no. the, the, the clear reference to that important sentence is where he says, Kai te rhetorike cuto crestion," because those are the exact words. How how show, how is it necessary to use rhetoric? Epi ae, for justice always, as well as Kai te ale pasi praxe, like everything else. Now, final bit: "Emoi un petomenos," so being persuaded by me. So he's talking directly to Callus, please. entalpha. Now where's 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 that there? Where's that enthalpha? Mm-hmm. Follow along there. Hoi to which having arrived. Okay, so what I'm saying is that it's not Altman that's asking what happens after the Gorgias. Plato's asking what happens after the Gorgias right here. Mm-hmm. He's saying follow to this place. <laughs> And once we have arrived there, that, that there is an extra-dialogic post-Gorgias moment that he's pointing to for the yeah. first time, there. Hoi afikomenos, iudaimoneses, kai So in the future, after the dialogue, if you come to this point with me, you will be happy, as I believe Plato did become happy as a result. Mm-hmm. who could be unhappy writing these dialogues and creating the academy and creating a yeah. name that would live forever, so that you and I are still discussing him exactly the way he wished we would That's right. uh, The next line is very interesting, Chris. It says, "Hos, ho logos semaine," has the discourse indicates. If you look at the manuscripts, all our best manuscripts say sos logos, as your logos signifies, which, of course, gets deleted. It was already deleted in F, but it's in BT and W. If you look down at your app, crit, mm-hmm. that would be a textual <laughs> indication that that, it's, that, that that maybe it's the reader's discourse or maybe it's that Socrates already believes it's become Calicles. That word sos, which has been banished, with slender editorial justification is a bit, a hint
0: of a textual. Well, it's a sign as it says, I mean, there is the sign that points beyond, right? Beautifully. It is a sign. Beautiful.
1: Right. Like uh, from Parmenides, a sign that points beyond. Beautiful. Kai. Then he says with the imperatives, a. Okay, so this is a nice little passage, which I won't read all of, where he's basically saying, subject yourself to being punched in the head and <laughs> being slapped and turned the other cheek, etc., and that, that you got be, to be brave. Then the kind of m- mission statement or teaching statement, Uden gardenon pese, eanto es kalos kagatos, asko naraton. for nothing possibly, cons- you can't suffer anything bad if in fact you are a true Kalos Kagathos, no. uh, practicing virtue. And that word practicing is going to become real important in, the, in, the, in, the, in this little peroration to this brilliant oration that is going to end up turning Calicles into Plato. Here's the key sentence. Kai epe ta, koinei <in Hebrew> We will turn to politics or whatever it else seems best to us with that The first, the word "kai epita," and thereafter, okay, that's yeah. after the dialogue. He's already looking forward what's going to happen next. "Kai epita huto you and I together, because I'm not going to be taking a single step right now without you, my friend. My, topo- my topology is about to turn into your topography, and they're going to become one here. Yeah. And, that, and, and that that, thereafter, only in common, having practiced. An, another reference to time. Then, indeed, in this moment that I'm gesturing to, this extra dialogic moment. Nothing could be clearer than that this sentence is pointing beyond the dialogue to what happens next. Ta meta, ta meta, tauta, the things that come next. And you read that introduction, because that's what I'm saying the kleidophon just is, that's like, ta meta, what comes next. Kataleon uh, right. is what comes next, which is already the message here. Yeah. Um, he leaves it open. We will turn to the politikos. We will turn to ta politica, or whatever else seems best to us. Maybe what will seem best to us is to create an academy. Maybe what will seem best for us is for you not to go into politics in Athens, Plato. Maybe what will, maybe what will seem best to us is for you to become a writer of dialogues that will lead other people to make this crisis and this decision. Mm-hmm. Um, it, by the way, that 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 question of what Plato and Socrates will do together—that's the bassinistic passage. So I will just say five twenty-six a two to c five. That is. That justifies what Plato and what Plato and Callicles will do together justifies the Basanos passage, uh-huh. and that what we will do that passage, in other words, where he leaves open whether we will go into politics or not, that passage relates directly to the to the to the. Oh, I, I think I got those numbers wrong, Chris yeah the the, the bassinistic passage is four eighty six e five to six. That's just where he says that it will be true if you agree with it. What we will do together at five twenty six a two to c five that's just a page back right That's where you've got that interesting passage where where Socrates allows that it would be harder to be just if you went into politics because if you actually had power, the temptations to be a wicked guy would be so great, and that all but all, but it has been done. Aristotes did it, and so maybe some future guy could do it. But on the other hand, there may be another rote which is like that of a philosopher who minds his own business and does his nothing. Myth- you know, one of the key things for me, Chris, is to realize that the reason that Socrates doesn't go into politics, and, and, and this, this I, I, I felt, I, if I had a criticism, I can say to your face, it is that, that there's a deflation, there's a tendency to deflate the divine sign as the, yeah. the sole reason that Socrates gives for not going into politics. As he tells us in the Theages, it's completely apotreptic. He says it again in the Apology. And he makes it clear in, in the Republic that he intended to go into politics, but that the sign stopped him in the bridal of Theage's passage at 496. It, that, that Plato's excuse for not going back down into the cave in ta politico, in the literal sense, right. is the sign stopped me. As I say somewhere in Plato the Teacher, what's your excuse? Rich. You've got the physical deformity of Theoggies, in case you're unless you're from a crummy little city and you and I are from the most powerful city in the world. You're it's not. like, what's your excuse? And and that it seems to me that Calicles and Socrates together create something that's more political than the guy that minds his own business, minds his own affair, and goes directly to the islands of the just. It's a more political path that Socrates, to political in Chris Long's sense. Yeah, no, I think that's right. It's educational. It's yeah. directed to everybody. It's demanding action. Um, so, um, so, so then we will take counsel since we were better able to do it than now. So the contrast between now in the dialogue. Where you and I aren't even saying the same things about the most important things. I don't think I'll read the rest of the passage, although yeah. it's pretty nice, especially when you get down to the end about how we will, uh, that, 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 well, at the very end of the passage where he says, let us therefore follow in this thing, let us follow this thing, tuto un uh kaitus uh, alos parakalumomen, and let us encourage and exhort all the others. Yeah. This is what as you say aptly, is that Plato, it might not have the immediate power of the topological in-your-face conflict and self-confrontation that Socrates provokes, but it has the great advantage that it will live forever. It will inspire Cicero and Long and Altman and millions of people way off into the future and that that it will encourage all of them, all of them. And so that, that that would be my textual um that that the contrast between tote be and nun uh, and 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 nun, the idea of koine and what seems best to us right. is pointing directly to the telos that my question is designed to take us. In other words, is it possible that that Callicles or Callicles? a brilliant man who has left absolutely no trace in the historical record. Right. And whose name is alarmingly similar to Plato's name, Aristocles. Yeah. In a dialogue that immediately follows Carmides, at least according to my reading order theory, the dialogue in which Carmides and Critias, Plato's own family, is introduced, as Socrates explains, to an unnamed heteros, who, by the way, I also regard as Plato. Uh, that's not my idea. That's uh, Lawrence Lampert came uh-huh. up with that. Uh, that the unnamed Hetairos in Carmides is Plato naturally interested in his own family, and that 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 uh, you know I think Shakespeare put it best that 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 you have to go through that conversion of self criticism self scrutiny to be remade on the other side and that, yeah. and that and that one of the beauties of looking at the late dialogues starting with Timaeus it, 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 Charles Kahn. Um, who you know, coined the term proleptic, which I thought was one of the most brilliant ideas. I completely steal it, borrow it. Kahn's yeah. new book is called Plato and the Post-Socratic Dialogue, Return to the Philosophy of Nature. And to me, that title says it all. You either think that Plato becomes an Aristotelian, you either think that Plato is going to become a pre-Socratic and return to cosmology and physics, thanks to kinesis, the soul is Kinesis in the Phaedrus to the cosmology, the, whatever it is in the book 10 of the laws. You either think that that's his direction or you don't. My feeling is that Plato is not a pre-Socratic. He was a Socratic and that that meant a rejection. I think that part of the reason that, 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 that I resi- that, that I'm so insistent in the dialogue you and I are having yeah. is that, that that the the insistent call of the cosmos, of physis, of science was so strong that it had mm-hmm. that it had stamped pre Socratic philosophy, it stamped philosophy, that 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 it took a radical break to say that's not where the truth is, my friend. Mm -hmm. The truth is not in the motion of the planetes. It's not in the cosmos. It's not in the uranos. I'm not going to say it's in you, and I'm not going to tell you much about saying that it's in the idea of the good. I am going to say it's in your intercourse with that. Mm -hmm. But there is truth. It's not in the cosmos. And you better start looking for it. (laughs) And then I think,
0: you know, you're, you're, you're First of all, it's a, it's a compelling argument that, that you're making here, and also from my perspective, one of the things that, that is compelling about it is the fact that we're performing it in our conversation right now. So, I mean, the fact that we're having this conversation, that we're and that we will that it will be up online, and that people will continue to be able to engage with these ideas is, you know, uh, a great argument for uh, the the the, the nature of Plato as a teacher and his continuing influence on us.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, that's, that's you, my friend. I mean, like that, 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 this thing that you're doing is, you know, Hegel said that thing about the owl of Minerva. Um, um, I got a lot of, you know, I hope, I hope he's wrong about that. In reading your book, Chris, I really felt, uh, especially in that, the, the passage about Plato's women, which I hope you lo- liked the emendation, but anyway, I'm keeping it in because I think it's true.
0: Is well, that, it's, it's true to what you've been writing about. So I, I, after I talk, after I read more about what you meant by that, I, I think it's at, it's perfectly at.
1: Well, I think that we're, you know, what, 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 what you suggest to me, my friend, is just that, 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 that we've got a real possibility of a platonic revival going and God knows that the United States needs one. Um, that, 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 with our separation of church and state, I think that's Plato's idea. I think Plato invented it. It's like the the, 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 the you, you turn the dollar bill over and find that triangle not connected to the pyramid. It's like there is a realm of higher truth, but it's not here. Mm-hmm. And of course, the real reason to separate truth and state is not to keep God out of the public school classroom the way our you know the, the right wing wants to put it. It's to prevent you know Jerry Falwell and you know whoever Joni Ernst from talking as if they had a direct revelation from God. Right. That's what it's about, and Plato was very alive to those dangers. Absolutely. And so it seems to me the safest to paraphrase Socrates is to say, "It's not me, it's not Socrates, and it's not Plato, the sage of Athens. There's something higher, though, and on that I'm going to be dogmatic."
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that that's great, and and I really uh, have. Uh, I appreciated your your review. I have appreciated your willingness to in- enter into the uh, uh, conversation on the blog. And I really have appreciated your, your conversation here face-to-face as much as face-to-face can be through mediated by the digital. And at some point, I'm sure good. we'll have an actual face-to-face conversation. And I'll, we'll look forward to that, too.
1: I'm saying goodbye to my wife who's going to work. Love you, sweetie. Okay.
0: Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, close it off by, by saying uh, this has been the Digital Dialogue. The Digital Dialogue is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share and share alike license. You can find all the episodes of The Digital Dialogue on www.cplong.org, where you're invited to listen and leave comments and engage with other listeners. The Digital Dialogue also has a Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash digital dialogue. This has been The Digital Dialogue.